Uh, we continue this morning uh, with our study of the confession, and today I'll be covering chapter 27 on the communion of saints. <clears throat> and I want to begin by sharing something. Uh, I remember having lunch with a pastor friend of mine, and while at lunch we began to talk about church and ministry, and in that discussion he began to share how he felt with regards to wanting to find creative ways for his church to be more unified, to be more together. And so he began to list some ideas that he thought would help bind his congregation in a tighter communion, things like planned social gatherings, events, and activities, and these are all good things. However, as much as I understood what he was trying to accomplish, I noticed that from the many things that he listed, none of them spoke of the Christological realities that in fact deal with the issue of communion within the body of Christ. And I tell you about this event not to be unnecessarily critical. In fact, I think gatherings and activities are great opportunities of fellowship and opportunities of edification. But I think many Christians mistake in social gatherings and activities as the object of our communion towards each other. Some have even gone as far as to say that if you don't plan out activities and events, your church is going to die. And this kind of advice is grounded on the false assumption that the unifying object of the gathered church is our ever-changing passions and our being kept entertained. Yet sadly, this is the case for many congregations, but it ought not to be. In fact, for the true church, it can't be. And so this is a question that I'm going to be addressing uh, today. Now, what is the nature of our communion together as saints? And I'll be also be addressing what I think is a greater blessing than the blessing of communion with one another, and that's the blessing of our communion with Christ. So I'm going to be talking about that. So let's begin by looking at paragraph one in your handout. This is, again, chapter 27 of our confession. So paragraph one. Can someone read it? All saints are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by the Spirit and by faith. Although this does not make them one person with you, they have fellowship in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. Since they are united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces, and are obligated to carry out these duties, both public and private, in an orderly way to promote their mutual good. Thank you, brother. So I'll begin by stating that the particular Baptists of the 17th century, they didn't modify this paragraph from the Westminster Confession as much as we've seen them do it in other chapters. Much of it is word for word with the Westminster, uh, with only a few modifications. Uh, we do see, however, that the Westminster has a third paragraph in that chapter on the communion of the saints. Uh, and, and the second London, our, our confession, only has two. And in, in, in their third paragraph, they address the fact that our union with Christ does not in any way make us partakers of the substance of the Godhead or in any way make us equal to Christ. <clears throat> but it seems that the Baptists were able to still communicate that uh, in the first sentence of paragraph one. You'll see it there. Where it, states, where it states, all saints are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith, although this does not make them one person with him. And so they, uh, they basically summarized what the Westminster Confession had in their third paragraph. They summarize it there in that one statement. So what does it mean? In simple terms, this is to say that when the Bible speaks of our union with Christ, it does not mean that we're joined to him in such a way that we become partakers of his very substance, like a sort of deification. Now, many cults today have spoken falsely, claiming that we become gods through our union with Christ or something similar. However, scripture indicates that God alone possesses his divine nature. False religions sometimes teach that we can become godlike, or even gods. And for this reason, we have to be very careful when we describe the doctrine of our union with Christ, that we 
not adopt anything that would support the heresy of becoming divine in nature. Our confession addresses that point right away. Just first sentence. And at best, we become, we become more like Christ as we increase in our relationship with him, but we do not become divine. Right? So we have to make sure that there is a creature-creator distinction there, a deity-creature uh, distinction when we think about us being transformed in the image of Christ, in Christ's likeness. Now often we're confronted with uh, verses that people easily twist to teach falsely. For example, uh, let's look at Jesus' prayer here in John 17, 22 to 23. It says, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. You see in that verse, there's a lot of, um, there, there's language there that seems to allude that our oneness in Christ is so much so that uh, we share in his substance. Uh, but but that's not what that's saying. And I'll, I'll interpret that in a few minutes. Uh, another verse there, you see 2 Peter 1.4, which says, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers, look what it says, of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption, excuse me, <clears throat> that is in the world by lust. <clears throat> so while it is true that we have union with God, as Jesus said in John 17, and where it also <clears throat> where it is also true that we're made partakers of the divine nature, these can't and should not be interpreted to mean our deification in the sense that um, we would have some sort of ontological change, a change in our being. <clears throat> um, what it does mean is that we participate in God's holiness through the person and work of Christ who dwells in us. <clears throat> and this is what it means that we become partakers of the divine nature. We become holy again. <clears throat> now, now that we got that out of the way, I want us to consider what the main point in paragraph one is. Uh, it's summarized in the beginning part of the first sentence. As it says, it says, All saints are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith. <clears throat> now, being that the subject of this whole chapter is the communion of the saints... This sentence answers the question about the nature of our communion with each other. <clears throat> this is very foundational, this statement here, right? That all saints are united to Jesus Christ, their head by his spirit and by faith. Our union with each other, right? Our communion with each other is on the very basis of our communion with Christ. So what we have here horizontally uh, is based on what we have vertically. Now, as we've, <clears throat> as we've gone week by week through each chapter of the Confession, I think it's pretty clear that there are various ways in which we are united to Christ, right? We've spoken about effectual calling. We've spoken about our justification in Christ. We've spoken about adoption in Christ. <clears throat> we've spoken of our sanctification in Christ. These are items within our union with Christ that unites us to him, right? These are elements of our union with Christ, However, what we're talking about here in today's subject is what the Puritans would call the mystical union between the believer and Christ, which encompasses all its benefits that I just mentioned, which I've also spoken of in previous lessons. <clears throat> and when you stop and think of all the blessings that we get in salvation, we should ask ourselves, what of all the blessings that are in salvation is the chief and primary blessing. Now think about all that we have in Christ, right? Justification, adoption, sanctification. But what is the chief and primary blessing? <clears throat> is it justification? Well, according to many of the Reformed, it is this very doctrine of the union with Christ that would be the primary blessing that a Christian receives from God. And we see this with uh, John Calvin as well. I'm going to quote uh, something from a 
book three in his institutes. And he says, he says, and I quote, how do we receive those benefits which the father bestowed on his only begotten son, not for Christ's own private use, but that he might enrich poor and needy men? And then he answers, first, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separate from him, all that he has suffered and done for salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. In other words, we see that Calvin is arguing for the absolute necessity of union with Christ. So as long as a sinner stands apart from Christ, he can't receive any aspect of Christ's mediatorial work until he's eventually united to him. What does that mean practically? Well, first of all, I think this highlights the error that many evangelicals have committed in times of outreach when they've assumed that for the unbeliever, a mere sinner's prayer would magically apply aspects of Christ's mediatorial work to that person. On the contrary, when one is united to Christ at the appointed time in which the Spirit draws them, it is then and only then that they receive all the benefits that are in him. This includes justification, repentance, adoption, adoption sanctification. All that is, achieved, is received in, when you are united to Christ. Uh, look what it says in John 3, 8. Can someone read that? The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Thank you. So from this verse, we see why the confession says we are united to Jesus Christ, our head, by his spirit. Okay? It is his spirit that brings about a spiritual union between the sinner and Jesus himself. And apart from that, there is no union with Christ. And we see from the first sentence that it is by the spirit, but it's also by faith. Right? Faith is then the vessel in which we receive this blessing of, of union with Christ. Now, I want us to look at how this doctrine of union with Christ is spoken of in Scripture. Uh, in the New Testament, especially, uh, in Paul's letters, union with Christ is both talked about directly, but also in the form of, like, word illustration. So, for example, let's look at Ephesians 2, 20 through 22. Can someone read that? Thank you. Notice the key words there. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows in, in, into a holy temple in the Lord. And then it says, in him, you also are being built together. And the key word, in him, is, it's alluding to this union with Christ, being in him. And in this analogy, we see Paul comparing our union with Christ with a building and its stones. And we are a temple. But we're a temple because we are in Christ, who is building us into a temple for God. And again, notice the words in Christ. This is union language. And this is similar to what is said by Peter in uh, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. Uh, and in this passage and others like it, we see that our union with Christ is the foundation for our communion with the believers. Right? These verses, when they speak about us in Christ, it's always that as sort of a presupposition uh, which informs us how, of how we ought to be with one another. We're, uh, we are also described as members of a body, and Christ being the head. You see that in Ephesians 3, Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 12, Colossians 2. And this speaks on union with Christ and naturally our union with others in Christ. Now the way theologians have developed this doctrine isn't from isolated pa uh, passages, 
but rather passages that speak on union with Christ as a whole. So they'll take these passages, uh, lay them out, for example, and they can see how all the references to, let's say, the terms that say in Christ or in him, you know, what, what does it tell us when you take all these verses, lay them out collectively and, and, and look, at it, look at it? Well, by that you see how this doctrine of in, uh, union with Christ was developed. Uh, for example, in one place in Scripture, uh, our union with Christ is described by the union of a vine with its branches. And in another of the stock of an olive tree with its limbs. You see these illustrations, and they kind of help us to understand this mystical union with Christ. Uh, I'll show you one, just for the sake of time. Um, John 15, 1 through 5 says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me, key word there, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Let me keep going. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And though this, this last part here, apart from me, you can do nothing, it, it speaks to that idea that uh, any, any of the covenant blessings that we receive can only be received in Christ. And it's only when you're united to Christ that you receive faith, repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification. And apart from that, you can do nothing, nor can you receive anything. The stock is Christ, who diffuses life, and to use vine imagery, fructifying sap, right, through all the branches. And this union that we have in Christ, as we are connected to the vine, uh, it nourishes the individual branches and also sustains the unity of all the branches. Okay, so keep those illustrations in mind as we try to apply this to the church. Uh, besides the pictures of the union that we have in Christ, we also see this union mentioned in the words of Paul. Uh, for example, you have the expression, in Christ. You see passages where it says, in the Lord, or in Him. All, those, all three of those occur about 164 times. And that's in Paul's letter alone. And so this is a, this is a very important doctrine. Um, let's look at another one. Uh, Romans 3.24, which says, And are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And notice how it tells us that being justified is a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. So we receive that when we're in Christ. There we see the necessity of union with Christ in order to receive any of his benefits. Uh, another one real quick. 1 Corinthians 15.22 for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So there's, a, there's, there's a, an ingrafting in Christ. There's, there, there, there we see it speaking of our union with Christ. And in him we're made alive. Uh, furthermore, we see other verses using this phrase in Christ. Scripture tells us that in Christ we are justified. You see that in Romans 8, 1. In Christ we're glorified. That's another salvation benefit that we receive when we're in Christ. And you see that in Romans 8.30. 1 Corinthians 1.2 tells us that in Christ we're sanctified. So again, another benefit of salvation uh, that can only be received in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.9 tells us that in Christ we're called. Ephesians 2.5 tells us in Christ we're made alive. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that in Christ we are created anew. 
Galatians 3.26 tells us, in Christ we've been adopted. And Ephesians 1.4-5 tells us that in Christ we have been chosen or elected. Another phrase, uh, you see the phrase with him, you see that in, I can list the passages, but that's just another one, uh, just for the sake of time, I'll keep it moving. Uh, there's with Christ, also seen in the New Testament. Uh, with Jesus is used once in 2 Corinthians 4, 14, another indication of this doctrine of uh, union with Christ. Not only are we said to be in Christ and with Christ, but here's another thing that I think I find, that I find fascinating, is that we're not only united to Christ, we're not in Christ only, but Christ himself is also united to us. He is in us, um, which I think is, is profound. Uh, you see that in many passages, but I'll just show you one. Uh, John 15, 5. It says, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him. So we have not only us abiding in Christ, but Christ abiding in us. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Now think about that reality that Christ uh, abides in you. If you're born again, not only are you in Christ, but Christ abides in you. And this is made possible through the indwelling Holy Spirit, as it says in Romans 8, 9. Can someone read that? You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Yes, and notice that the Spirit of God uh, is synonymous to the Spirit of Christ there. And so the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ as understood uh, in the Nicene Creed, right? Uh, where it says he proceeds from the Father and from the Son, which is how Christ is communicated in us and abides in us. He abides in you by virtue of, of, of the Holy Spirit abiding in you. Now, looking back at our confession, the second sentence tells us, that, tells us what is received through our union with Christ. It says, they have fellowship in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And so here we see that everything that Christ did and everything he now possesses as a mediator now belongs to us. That's a wonderful truth. We're not only one with Christ in his graces, but we're also one with Christ in his sufferings in his death. We're one with Christ in the resurrection. And we're also one with Christ in his glorification. Uh, we spent a good amount of time looking at the graces. I, I want us to look at the sufferings. Uh, look at Romans 8, 17. Can someone read that? And if children and heirs, heirs of God, and Yeah, so you see, provided we suffer with him. Uh, the children of Christ, those who are united to Christ, are also united in his suffering. Now, as we reflect Christ in this world, we are then persecuted in the same way that Christ was. Not, not exactly the same way. Uh, but when I say in the same way, I mean that as they see us and have hatred towards our Lord, uh, in a sense, we, we, uh, we receive the repercussions of that, right? As we resemble the Messiah, as we resemble our Lord in this world, uh, we receive suffering uh, for the mere fact that we bear his image. Another verse, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14. Can someone read that? So if you're 
if you're suffering for the cause of Christ, uh, it's telling us to rejoice uh, because you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Uh, in a sense, it should bring you comfort uh, that it's a, it's a real sign that the spirit of Christ uh, lives in you. And if you struggle with assurance, um, one of those signs is seeing uh, in your life whether or not you're suffering for the cause of Christ. Now, everyone's not going to suffer in the same way. Um, but you will be outcasted in social circles often. You're not going to be numbered among the cool kids sometimes. You know, and in many ways, you become a social martyr. Um, and depending on the situation and depending on how um, Christ needs to shine in the midst of that situation, that God may have called you in or will call you in, it might mean death. It might mean persecution in a physical sense. Um, we're open to that uh, because what it means is that uh, we are united to our Lord, our Savior. And that apparently is evident to others as they persecute us. So uh, we have this calling to rejoice in that. Now, let's look at uh, the other aspects in which we uh, share in Christ. We also see death and resurrection. Uh, here's another verse here that talks about death and resurrection as aspects of our union with Christ. It says, what shall we say then? This is Romans 6, 1 through 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And so here we see that in his death we're united, but we're united in his death so that we too would have the hope of resurrecting into newness of life. And so we experience the practical implications of that even now as the flesh is now being mortified. Uh, and as we walk in newness of life even now by his spirit as his spirit uh, regenerates us and renews our mind. But there's also a real eschatological sense to this that one day we too will hit the grave but we also have this promise that just as Jesus resurrected from the grave into a glorified state we too will receive the same benefit and so this is another way that we partake in that uh, another verse uh, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God when Christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory. And so you have that glorification aspect in which we uh, share with Christ. This is Colossians 3, 3-4. So again, here we see that Jesus, that as Jesus died, resurrected, and received glorification, we too will be glorified in him. Moving along, let's look at the last sentence in paragraph 1. Can someone read that, just that last sentence? So uh, in this part of the paragraph, we see two points. The first point is that due to our union with Christ, we are also unified to one another, right, in love. So all of you are united to Christ. Therefore, as people who are united to Christ, we are connected to one another. Uh, and the second point is that we now have an obligation towards one another to carry out the mutual good 
both in the inner and outer aspects of the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ by the gifts and the graces we each receive. And so there, uh, for the fact that we're united to Christ, we are also united to each other, and that means that there are obligations and duties that we have towards each other, uh, not only because of the fact that we're united to Christ and we're united to each other, but because we also see that Scripture commands us to treat each other in a certain way, um, to have a certain kind of fellowship with one another, uh, and all that is centered on the foundation of our union with Christ. Uh, it's, I think it's an important point, but I think the second paragraph is going to break it down even further. So just for the sake of time, let's look at paragraph two. Uh, someone read paragraph two? Saints by profession are obligated to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in worshiping God and in performing other spiritual services that promote their mutual edification. They are to aid each other in material things according to their various abilities and needs. They should especially exercise communion in the relationships they have in their families and churches. Yet the rule of the gospel also directs them, as God provides opportunity, to extend their sharing to the whole household of faith, to all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Nevertheless, their communion with one another as saints does not take away or infringe on the title or individual ownership that people have in their goods and possessions. Thank you. So beginning with the first sentence here, paragraph two, it says, saints by profession, right? This refers to those who claim to be believers. Their profession, they're saying that they're a believer. Uh, it, it basically refers to the visible saints, as uh, Pastor Ron spoke of last week in the previous chapter. Uh, it refers to those who are, according to man's understanding, true Christians. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that they actually are Christians. Um, however, there is a duty for those who profess to be Christians to, to perform and to, to live as Christians. Uh, and so the, the point here is that everyone who professes to be a believer ought to maintain the holy fellowship and convocation of God's people for the worship of God. And so what that means is if you call yourself a Christian, there's, thing, there's duties to that. There, there's, it means something that you're a member of, of, of the church, of the body of Christ. We don't know your heart. We can't discern whether you're really a true believer. Uh, we'll leave that to God and, of course, to the, uh, the church as we seek to uh, keep the body pure. Um, but, again, it refers to those who um, profess to be a believer. They're, they have this duty to maintain the holy fellowship and convocation of God's people for the, for the worship of God. Now, in paragraph one, uh, we talked about our union with Christ, but here the confession moves from that to now speaking of our communion with each other. Uh, our union with Christ is the foundation for our communion with the fellow believers. And I want you to see the connection between our union with Christ and our union towards each other. Look at John 13, 34 through 35. Can someone read that? Thank you. Now, from this verse, notice how we're called to do something because this something was done to us, right? Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And this is important because it tells us that in a church community, our actions towards each other should not be based on us directly, but rather indirectly. Okay, I'm going to repeat that. It tells us that in a church community, our action towards each other should not be based on us directly, but rather indirectly. In other words, my action as a church member should never be from me to you, right? When I interact with you, it shouldn't be from me to you, but rather from me to Christ to you. Again, never from me to you, but from me to Christ to you. Okay. What you need for your soul is never William. 
even outside of the church, I'll say that. What you need for your soul is never William. What you need for your soul is Christ. Okay? You don't need anything special about my personality. If I'm skilled in any way, if I'm, if I, I make you comfortable, if that's just my personality, that's how I was raised to be, you don't need that from me. What you need is Jesus Christ. Okay? Therefore, the communion of the saints is not a, merely a human alliance, nor is it direct, as I just, I just spoke about. Instead, saints are in communion through their communion uh, with Christ. So our communion here is, should be based on our communion with Christ. And this is why when it comes to Jesus' command to love one another, he immediately links it to his love for us. Right? Any love, right? If, you, if you're going to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, any love that is motivated by anything else that isn't Christ's love in the gospel is not really the spiritual love that God is commanding you to give towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. Human or fleshly love is directed to the other person for their own sake, right? If you share fleshly love, it's usually a selfish love. In fact, it is all the time, right? Human fleshly love is directed to the other person for his own sake, while spiritual love loves for Christ's sake. So this is something we have to put to practice. That when you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, when you do, uh, excuse me, when you come together as a community, Christ has to be at the forefront. You have to be meditating on him, thinking of him, and let that inform how you deal with other people. Uh, Here's an example. Flattery, right? You may approach a brother or sister in Christ and tell them how amazing they are, how great they are, However, this usually doesn't serve the brother or sister, right? On the contrary, flattery only serves the person who's making the flattering remarks because they seek to be liked. And in the end, this is sinful. And so the, the natural man has, has the, uh, the tendency to do things for selfish gain. This is where we have to be careful. Human love fleshly love has little regard for truth, as Bonhoeffer once put it. Therefore, true love towards one another can only be shared if there is first true love for Christ. And this also speaks, this also speaks to our sensitivities. In a community of believers, there may be many incidences in which a person might feel personally offended by another brother or sister. But before you go home upset, the first thing you ought to do is ask yourself, am I more concerned with what offends me or should I be more concerned with what offends Christ? In other words, you don't get a free pass as an innocent victim to hold grudges against your brother or sister simply because they've offended you according to your own personal sensitivities. There is such thing as sinful sensitivities. Sinful sensitivities will always make much of you rather than making much of Christ. And this is something that we all have to be careful of, including myself. Now, we dare not desire direct fellowship with one another, but only indirect fellowship that places Jesus Christ as the sole object, so that the communion of the saints be a communion centered around Christ alone and not around the personalities of people. And this is what it means in the first sentence there in the paragraph where it states that saints by profession are obligated to maintain a what? A holy fellowship. And that's what that means. Moving along, the sentence goes on to say, and communion in worshiping God and in performing other spiritual services that promote their mutual edification. And so this speaks of what is probably the most basic element of our communion together, which is that a believer who is united to Christ will eventually be drawn to be united to his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, not only when we hang out, but specifically in corporate worship. We read in Hebrews 10.25, where it says, not neglecting to meet together, 
as, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So being united to Christ entails solemn obligations to others who are united in him. And the duties growing out of our communion with the saints demand faithfulness to actually be with them. Right? Especially at the public gathering of the church on the Lord's Day. Mutual edification, as we're called to have and to to perform, is actually impossible if we neglect gathering. And this means that this hyper-individualized Christianity is utterly unbiblical. Moving along, um, we read uh, in the paragraph, it says, they are to aid each other in material things according to their various abilities and needs. They should especially exercise communion in the relationships that they have in their families and churches. Yet the rule of the gospel also directs them as God provides opportunity to extend their sharing to the whole household of faith, to all those who are in every place every place called upon the name of the Lord Jesus. So right away, we see that Christians, as we gather, are not only called to share in their spiritual gifts for the sake of mutual edification, but we're also called to aid each other in material things. Examples of this could be giving food to members who are in need. And I I praise God, we, we see that a lot in here. Um... It, it, it could be helping families with things at home, helping them fix something, you know, uh, offering money to those who are in need. Uh, and, and we must display our authentic love to each other for Christ's sake and, and by Christ's power, right? Motivated by the gospel. And as true as it is that Christ is our head and our elder brother, Christians should meditate on the fact that they are truly brothers and sisters in fact, in a way that I think is more true than our own relatives. We are brothers and sisters probably in a more uh, higher priority, more serious, more real level than uh, our blood relatives. So I think that'll help um, kind of put things in order in your mind when you think about how you ought to be with your brothers and sisters in Christ. We are really brothers and sisters with each other if we are in Christ. Acts 2, 44 through 45. Can someone read that? Thank you. Now, even though this kind of charity, right, that we have towards each other here at our church, you know, that sort of thing should start home, right? In your local church, where you're a member of. But I don't think it should stop there, right? We as Christians, we support each other with uh, material needs and spiritual blessings. But again, it should not stop there, right? The paragraph tells us that, uh, it continues on by telling us that the extent of our loving and sharing to all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. This means that our love and our charity should extend to every Christian that God gives us the opportunity to run into and to serve, right? If you happen to be visiting another church or you know another brother or sister in Christ that is a member of another church, but you see that they're in need, you shouldn't hesitate to also serve them as well. Biblical examples of this is seen in Acts 11, right? As the churches gave financially to other churches in need, this is, a, this, is, this is a practice that we ought to perform, um, to do, um, because we're united to each other, because we're united to Christ, right? And finally, we, re- we read the last sentence there in paragraph two. It says, nevertheless, their communion with another, I'm sorry, with one another as saints does not take away or infringe on the title or individual ownership that people have in their goods and possessions. This is a this is an important uh, an important paragraph. I think, especially in our day, when there are so many uh, 
political theories and so many ideas that are floating around that are out there wanting to inform how the church ought to do things, right? Um, many have read Acts 2, 44 through 45. Many have read that passage to be the basis of what is known as a communist economic model. The communist economic theory suggests that a true just economy is one that leaves no room for the ownership of personal property for the sake of eliminating this class distinction between people who may have a lot and people who don't have a lot. And the idea is that in Acts 2, 44 through 45, you see that everyone gave up personal property and shared all things which kept everyone on an equal plane. Sometimes people read that passage and interpret it that way. However, the confession refutes that by stating that the communion with one another as saints does not take away or infringe on the title or individual ownership that people have in their goods and possessions, right? In other words, that passage in Scripture is not saying take everything that you have, distribute it to this one sort of uh, place to where you actually don't own anything, but the church distributes it to all members so that everyone is equal. And some people have taken that to say, to say hey, look, the Bible supports a communist economical system, which uh, leaves no one with personal property, but distributes everything equally so that there's equality. Uh, but that's not what the, the scriptures teaches. And, and again, the, the confession refutes that. And it states that communion with one another as saints does not actually take away individual ownership of property. Uh, first of all, the Bible teaches that the, the Bible teaches the sinfulness of theft, which I think underlining that idea is theft. Uh, but it also teaches, the Bible also teaches the sanctity of private property. In other words, what you worked for and what you've purchased is yours. And no church member can come and say, hey, you're my brother in Christ. You know, give me some of that, you know, and demand your personal property. Ephesians 4.28 Right? We read, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so we see in this passage that the work, that work, right, laboring, allowed a person to obtain personal property. And from that ownership of it, a person was then free to share it if they wanted to or even give it, give it away if they wanted to. And this is what we see in the early church, in Acts. The members of the church would, would not have been a blessing towards one another if all of their possessions were confiscated and then spread to everyone uh, and distributed evenly. Uh, on the contrary, it was a matter of giving freely of what they actually own. Now, why, why did the writers of the confession find it necessary to place this qualification in the confession? Uh, and another question is, if we are one body, then why is it the case that our property is not also common for, for everyone that's in one body? Well, the answer to this is uh, that I'd say that we must remind ourselves first of the foundation of our unity, right? We are one in Christ. However, we are not one directly, like I mentioned before. Therefore, our property first belongs to Christ, and only through him do we give or serve someone else with it. In other words, I have no right to demand my brother's car. Like, give me your car, Pito. I don't have that right. We must respect that our brother's property belongs to him as a divine stewardship between him and God. We do not have direct claim upon anyone's goods. And with that stewardship, we have no right to interfere, right? Hopefully that was clear. Um, let me stop there. Uh, that, that concludes chapter 27. Next week, Lord willing, we'll get into chapter 28. Um, any questions? I have two minutes to spare. If you were to add to this the obligation of 
the fellowship and the communion in worshiping, what would you add to what you've already said there in terms of the importance of gathering? Yeah, if I, if I were to just add from my personal... Right. Um, well, here's what I'd say. I'd say, number one, uh, we... Well, the modern church... Um, sees the corporate gathering of worship as an option, right? They see it as an option. They think that being in Christ means freedom to sleep in or to um, to take up an uh, take up employment uh, to work on on the on the day of, of gathering to you know, all kinds of things that to that individual they assume to assume these things to be a necessity when the whole time God was the provider the whole time in other words your employer is not the reason why you get a check every other week God is the reason why you get a check every week and so I say that to say that when you neglect the gathering of the saints especially on the Lord's Day um, it's not like, man, you're slipping up. Man, you need to kind of prioritize. No, I actually think it's a moral issue. I think, I think it's a moral issue because everyone is called to be risky. Everyone is called to take risks, to sacrifice. But for some reason, when it comes to the worship of God, uh, there's all these hesitations. And so, you know, I, I don't say that to be legalistic, but I do think it's a moral problem. And if it's a moral problem, it's not legalism. It's actually sin. And so uh, it's important that we prioritize the Lord's Day worshiping and the gathering of the saints um, because uh, the, the, the reason why you exist, the pinnacle point of all things in history is uh, coming before God worshiping and saying holy 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 is the lord and so uh worshiping god is the only reason why you exist and so uh to, to prioritize that in any other order i think is is a mistake <laughs> i hope that answers the question okay um i got time for one more and then i'll i'll close out let's pray our father we thank you that we are united to Christ. We were once dead in our sins and completely hopeless. Yet your spirit drew us in and applied to us all that was accomplished in Christ. We're blessed beyond measure. And so we thank you for loving us. And Father, we pray that, that we would also extend that same love and servitude towards our brothers and sisters. That our communion with each other would be centered around Jesus and him alone. For we ask this in his precious name. Amen. Thanks, guys.